0: Hello and welcome to our London History Podcast, where we share our love of London, its people, places and history. It's designed for you to learn things about London that most Londoners don't even know. I am your host, Hazel Baker, qualified London tour guide and CEO and founder of londonguidedwalks.co.uk. Each episode is supported by show notes, transcripts, photos and further reading. All to be found on our website. Click on londonguidedwalks.co.uk, podcast and then select the episode that you fancy. And if you enjoy what we do, then you'll love our guided walks and private tours that we offer throughout the year. All to be found on our website, londonguidedwalks.co.uk. Get that cup of tea, put your feet up and enjoy last week's episode, number 103, Annie Besant, part one, was exactly that. We covered Annie's earlier life and what it would have been like to live in mid-Victorian London. So we'll pick up her story now. At the age of 26 in 1873, Annie has now formally separated from her husband. She's gone back down to London and their official separation agreement gave her custody of her three-year-old daughter, Mabel, while her son, Digby, remained with his father. After this significant change in her personal life, Annie embraced new affiliations and ideologies aligned with her evolving perspectives. Annie's life had crumbled around her, but her relationship with her mother remained unbreakable, despite the heartache caused by her change in faith and subsequent social exclusion. Annie's mother was aware of how harshly the world judges and she understood that simply being a young and woman could justify any level of slander. At the time, Annie hadn't yet realised how malicious people could be or how venomous their words might be. She writes that... If she had to make the choice again, she would choose to face the same path because she wouldn't have been able to carry the weight of a dishonest facade. Annie's mother was a woman of unwavering devotion to her loved ones and fierce disdain for anything base or dishonourable. And she passed away at a Norwood home in May 1874. She had profoundly impacted Annie's life, shaping her values and character and leaving her with an indelible legacy of courage, love and integrity. Annie joined the National Secular Society, an organisation advocating for free thought and the separation of religion from civic affairs. This membership allowed her to explore and express her non-religious views, reinforcing her commitment to critical thinking and rationality. Additionally, Annie became an active member of the Fabian Society, a prominent socialist organisation that aimed to advance social justice, equality and progressive political ideas. Through her involvement in these organisations, Annie championed causes dear to her, transforming her personal beliefs and experiences into a powerful force of societal change. Her dedication to these movements would shape her legacy as a pioneering figure in secularism and socialism. Now she's living in London, she would visit South Place Chapel, a small chapel in London where she listened to religious lectures. She regularly went to the British Museum to study and bought her books at Mr Edward Trulove's shop at 256 High Holborn. He will return to Annie's story a little later on. Annie received her certificate for the National Secular Society and she also met Bradlaugh. They first met at the Hall of Science and they had their first conversation in a small study located at 29 Turner Street, Commercial Road. Annie was impressed by his collection of books, which filled the tiny room. A few days later, he visited her in Norwood and Annie started writing for the National Secular Society's newspaper, The National Reformer, for which she earned a salary of a guinea a week. This marked the beginning of a career as a publicist for Annie, and also an activist, and that would keep her in the public eye for many years. She was a militant atheist campaigner, and she spoke at public meetings all over the country, selling articles and tracts. Her first lecture was on the theme of political status of women, and it was given to the Cooperative Institute on the 25th of August 1874. Her second lecture was delivered on the 27th of September at Conway's Chapel, St Paul's Road in Camden Town, and she re-delivered it a few weeks later at a Unitarian chapel. In 1875, the Dialectical Society had been holding their meetings for several years in a room in Adams Street just off the Strand, and they rented it from the Social Science Association. However... On February 17th, members arrived to find the door locked and had to congregate on the stairs. They learnt that Ajax's paper had unsettled the Social Science Association, resulting in the denial of entry to their usual meeting room. So, they sought refuge with Annie's pseudonym, Ajax, at the Charing Cross Hotel and jovially discussed the peculiarities of religious bigotry. The most challenging part of Annie's battle was yet to come. In 1878, an attempt was made to take away her little girl, Mabel. The plan was for Mabel not to return to her mother after her usual one-month annual visit to her father's. Annie quickly recovered her child by threatening to issue a writ of habeas corpus. When Annie took her first steps onto the platform of the Hall of Science in Old Street St. Luke's, the secularists, known for their passionate support of those who made sacrifices to join them, welcomed her warmly. This hall was special to Annie because she associated it with various struggles, victories and also defeats. No matter the outcome, she always received a warm welcome there. Their support also prevented any bitterness from arising, even though some unfriendly individuals showed her unkindness. Public speaking wasn't without its risks. Some of the lectures were challenging. For example, in Darwin, Lancashire, in 1875, some individuals thought it appropriate to throw stones at the atheist speaker. In Swansea in March 1876, people were so fearful of violence that the hall owner demanded a guarantee against damages. Moreover, not a single local person was brave enough to be the chairman for her lecture. As far as Annie's health was concerned, lecturing... Well, it was like a medicine for her. She had always had a delicate chest, but when she asked a doctor whether she could withstand the platform, he replied, it will either kill you or cure you. In the end, the experience cured her lung weakness and she became strong and robust instead of remaining frail and delicate. So, in March of 1877, Charles Bradlaugh MP and Annie Besant decided to start their own publishing company called Freethought Publishing Company. They set it up at 28 Stonecutter Street near Fleet Street in London, and the main reason for starting the company was to republish an affordable, groundbreaking birth control pamphlet called Fruits of Philosophy. It had been taken off the market by the previous publisher after a bookseller had been prosecuted. Bradlaugh and Besant were determined to challenge the law, seeing it as a crucial matter of free speech and a way to provide working people with the knowledge to control their family size and combat poverty. The pamphlet had been in circulation in Britain since 1833, but it faced scrutiny and legal challenges when its previous publisher faced obscenity charges in early 1877. The new edition, a subtitled An Essay on the Population Question, proved to be an instant success and quickly became a bestseller. On the day before its release, Annie and Charles had personally delivered copies to the Chief Clerk of the Magistrates, the officer in charge of the City Police, and the solicitor for the City of London. They even declared their intention to sell the book from their publishing company at Stonecourses Street, which sparked widespread controversy and debate. On the first day alone, nearly 1,000 copies were sold, and within a year, an impressive 125,000 copies were sold. The location of 28 Cutter Street has a radical history, but it's now hidden beneath the headquarters of Goldman Sachs. Their bold move came with consequences. On April 7th, 1877, Annie and Charles were arrested and taken into custody first to the police station in Bridewell Place and then to the Guild Hall. Some feared that the Knowlton trial could be combined with blasphemy charges against Annie, making a powerful case against them. The trial of Her Majesty Queen versus Charles Bradlow and Annie Besant began on June 18th 1877. It was a high-profile case, with Sir Harding Gifford prosecuting and Sir Alexander Cockburn, the Lord Chief Justice of England, presiding. The charges against Bradlow and Besant were controversial, as they were accused of printing and selling an obscene libel that was deemed to be corrupting to public morals. According to the prosecution any text with the potential to corrupt morals was considered obscene and they argued that the fruits of philosophy fell under that definition. The controversy surrounding the case was further heightened because a woman was among the accused. In the Victorian era, the legal system did not recognise a woman's individual identity and subsumed it under that of her husband. Besant's appearance in the courtroom challenged the gendered legal system of the time. Moreover, she represented herself in court rather than relying on legal counsel, which only added to the controversy. The fact that Bessant chose to represent herself was not only a challenge to gender norms, but also demonstrated her determination and bravery in the face of adversity. Despite her lack of legal expertise, she relied on Bradlow's extensive knowledge of the law to defend herself in court. The trial attracted a lot of attention and the courtroom packed with spectators and thousands more reading it in the newspapers at home. As the trial of Bradlow and Besant unfolded, it became clear that a legal technicality would ultimately decide the outcome of the case. Despite facing numerous challenges, Besant and Bradlaugh remained committed to their cause of free speech and disseminating information. The trial sparked a wider discussion on censorship, gender and the law, with Bessant's actions in the courtroom serving as an example of resilience and dedication to her beliefs. During the trial, Besant and Bradlaugh connected their advocacy for birth control to a Malthusian perspective, arguing that overpopulation was a cause of poverty. Besant was deeply concerned about the suffering of the impoverished, particularly the impact of large families on the availability of food. Think of how she described her own mother's family, decreasing in wealth. As the size of their family increased. In her defense, she referenced the work of Reverend Thomas Malthus, who was argued that unchecked population growth would lead to famine. The trial of Besant and Bradlaugh had a lasting impact on public discourse surrounding obscenity, gender, and the law and their efforts helped to pave the way for greater acceptance of birth control and a more progressive understanding of gender roles in society. During the 1870s, when Annie was promoting birth control and matthewsism, uh, there were other explanations for poverty and social inequality available. Some early socialists proposed that poverty was the result of unequal distribution of value under capitalism. Karl Marx, for example, argued that unemployment and falling wages were inherent features of capitalism, which maintained an impoverished, and I quote, reserve army of unemployed workers, unquote. These alternative explanations highlighted systematic issues within capitalism rather than overpopulation as the sole cause of poverty. Nevertheless, in her legal defence, Besant focused on Malthusian theories as the primary cause of poverty and suffering among the poor in Britain and beyond. She noted that improvements in health and sanitation had led to rapid population growth in England throughout the 19th century, even as wages fell, unemployment rose and food prices increased. Her arguments may have resonated strongly during the economic depression in Britain in the 1870s. However, it is worth noting that Besant did not mention the alternative explanations for poverty and social inequality proposed by socialists and Marxists. During her trial, it was revealed that Annie's shift towards Malthusian theories was influenced by her close relationship with Bradlaugh, no doubt, to taint her character. But her character wasn't on trial. Or was it? The trial lasted four days before a divided jury returned a qualified guilty verdict. The defendants were handed sentences of six months' imprisonment, ordered to pay a fine of £200 and prohibited from publishing the book for a minimum of two years. Despite this admonition, they persisted in publishing the controversial material, and Bradlaugh managed to have the judgment set aside on a technicality concerning the wording of the original indictment. As a result, the trial generated extensive publicity for contraception and family planning, significantly raising awareness and shaping public discourse on these issues for years to come. The trial's outcome and subsequent discussions strengthened Besant's resolve, propelling her further into the realm of public activism. In the aftermath of a trial, Besant remained unsatisfied with the fruits of philosophy, seeing its methods as outdated. She resolved to write a more current guide on contraceptive methods, eventually publishing The Law of Population – which provided an up-to-date and also clearer advice and also advertisements for contraceptive devices. And she went on to establish the Malthusian League to disseminate birth control information. A Dr. Henry Albert also published The Wife's Handbook, where, in the first line, Dr. Albert states, From the first marriage night, no woman under 45 years of age can consider herself safe. These events signified a turning point in the history of birth control activism, shaping the understanding of reproduction as a social problem with implications that resonated from London to the Indian Empire and back. Bradlaugh's involvement in a tradition of mid-19th century English radicalism and Besson's subsequent campaigns advocating contraception made them an unlikely duo. Nonetheless, their collaboration and activism helped to bring about significant changes in attitudes towards reproductive health and family planning. Annie kept seeking knowledge and understanding – She studied and taught, preparing for exams at London University and building a strong foundation in science. But she faced opposition from people because of her beliefs, even academics. She failed the practical chemistry component of the BSc degree three times, which was strange because she had passed a tougher exam at South Kensington, but she stayed determined. Annie and Miss Bradlaugh, so Charles's daughter, were denied entry to a botany class at University College. Annie was refused because of her beliefs, and Miss Bradlaugh just because she was her father's daughter. They faced a lot of backlash and insults, making their journey harder because of their heresy. Annie first met Herbert Burroughs in 1879, but they became close during the Socialist Troubles of 1887, and they worked together on land law reform, which was later used as a basis for proposals in Parliament. In 1882, Sir Henry Tyler tried to start blasphemy prosecutions against people involved in the Freethinker publication, including Foote, Ramsey and Whittle. He wanted to make Bradlaugh... Annie's ally, responsible for the paper and maybe even remove him from Parliament. Tyler also went after Bradlaugh's daughters, inspecting their bank accounts and trying to take away the grant they had earned as science teachers. But his motion in the House of Commons failed and Bradlaugh's daughters and Annie found success in their fields. William Stead, the son of a congregational minister and a pioneer of investigative journalism, and Annie started a weekly publication called The Link. Their goal was to give a voice to the disadvantaged and push for social justice. The paper exposed injustices like low wages and poor working conditions while fighting for better treatment of workers and tenants. The link also backed Dockers and campaigned for children's meals in schools. They even promoted ethical consumerism, emphasising the need for fair wages at for labour. They focused on a big campaign against match manufacturer Bryant and May, uncovering the company's low wages and harsh conditions. Annie and Herbert Burrows, a founder member of the Social Democratic Federation, called for a boycott and demanded better treatment and fair pay. The link wanted to inspire readers to take action and help others, showing how personal responsibility was essential for social change. Annie faced a libel threat, but nothing happened. Instead, the company went after the girls. A group of match girls stormed Fleet Street, demanding to see Annie. She met with a small group of them to hear their stories. These women refused to sign a paper saying they were treated well, and one girl was fired for standing with Annie. As a result, about 1,400 match girls went on to strike and asked Annie for guidance for two weeks. Annie and Herbert Burroughs worked non-stop to help the striking girls. They raised funds, registered the girls for strike pay, wrote articles, rallied clubs, held public meetings and even got members of parliaments involved. People all over the country joined in the Match Girls fight. Eventually, the London Trades Council stepped in as arbitrators and a fair settlement was reached Fines and deductions were abolished, better wages were paid, and the matchmakers' union was formed. It became the strongest women's trade union in England. Annie was the secretary for years until she had to step down, and Mrs Thornton-Smith took over. Herbert Burroughs was the treasurer. Over time, tension between the company and the union lessened, and they started working together. The company even became a big supporter of the Working Women's Club at Bow, which was founded by Helena Mitrova-Blavatsky. Amidst various controversies, Annie continued her work with the school board, which was made possible by the generous financial assistance of anonymous friends. She also engaged in socialist work and championed various labour movements. Additionally, she spent time feeding and clothing impoverished children in her district and pursued her studies wherever possible. Annie pursued a libel suit against Reverend Hoskins, the vicar of Stepney, for circulating defamatory content about her during the 1888 school board election. Despite facing significant opposition from the Solicitor General, Sir Edward Clarke, and Baron Huddleston, Annie's denial of the allegations remained unshaken after five hours of cross-examination. The jury ultimately disagreed on the verdict, with some members unwilling to penalise the clergyman for his overzealous defence of his faith against unbelief. Annie chose not to seek a new trial as she believed her innocence had been sufficiently demonstrated. Annie Besant's name is often connected with the Theosophical Society and our journey begins in the inaugural meeting of the Blavatsky Lodge, a branch of the Theosophical Society which took place in London on May 19th 1887 at 17 Landown Road in Holland Park. Now this location soon became the weekly meeting spot for the next 10 years and it was here that Helena Petrova Blavatsky penned a significant portion of her magnum opus, The Secret Doctrine. Annie, conflicted and searching, visited Helena at the lodge, contemplating joining the Theosophical Society She knew that doing so could mean facing ridicule and potentially losing the support of friends who had stood by her in the past, including her strongest ally, Charles Bradlaugh. However, Annie's unwavering determination to seek the truth eventually led her back to the Theosophical Society, despite the obstacles. Annie's decision to embrace theosophy surprised the public. Theosophists believed that Madame Blavatsky received telepathic guidance from Tibetan masters, and Annie herself came to believe that she had been a Hindu in a past life. Theosophy's vibrant and appealing belief system attracted those who sought alternatives to narrow and outdated ideas, offering a higher teaching derived from Eastern wisdom and ancient universal truths that underpinned all religions. At this time, many British people sought religious inspiration from India and promising young Indians were sent to Britain to learn from their colonial rulers. In 1890, these two groups encountered Gandhi, a young law student in London. In the summer of 1890, the lease for 17 Lansdowne Road expired, prompting the decision to convert 19 Avenue Road into the European headquarters of the Theosophical Society. A hall was constructed for the meetings of the Blavatsky Lodge and various other modifications were made to accommodate the growing community. In July, Elena's team of workers united under one roof. Following Helena's passing on the 8th of May 1891, Annie stepped into her shoes and two years later moved to India where she spent much of her life and time advocating for Indian self-rule, drawing on her experiences and connecting with Indian activists and political leaders. Besant's time in London was marked by her social, spiritual and political activities. There are a number of blue plaques to her, including at 9 Colby Road on Gypsy Hill, where she lived for a year in 1874. As a social activist, Annie was involved in the labour movement, advocating for better working conditions for women and children in London's factories and workshops. And she also worked to improve access to education and healthcare for the city's poor. Her social activism in London was driven by commitment to social justice and a desire to improve the lives of those who were marginalised and oppressed during the city's stark class divisions and the harsh working conditions faced particularly by women and children in its factories and workshops. There is a blue plaque on Hambury Hall in Spitalfields where in 1888 Annie and Eleanor Marx Aveling, Karl Marx's younger daughter, held the Matchstick Girls' strike meetings which helped to establish the British Trade Unions. Eventually Annie's children broke free from their father and returned to her. Mabel got married and both children followed in Annie's footsteps sharing her views on humanity. They joined the Theosophical Society, the same society that Annie had struggled to find but eventually embraced. If you'd like to know more about the amazing women in the city of London, then I'm pretty sure you'll enjoy my Women in the City walking tour. All bookable on our website, londonguidedwalks.co.uk. That's all for now. Until next time.